What a wonderful privilege it is to be able to come to you this morning and be able to open up the Word of God. It is a gift from heaven above to be able to have God's Word, to be able to look to God's Word so that we know a better way of living. You know, a lot of times we think that God's Word and God's law is some sort of a restriction. Like we're a, a cow on one side of the fence and on the other side of the fence is that big lush green pasture and that fence which represents God's word which represents God's law is restricting us from that which is most precious but the reality is God's word is not a restriction from blessing but rather it is a guardrail from the difficulties that this world has to offer it's a guardrail that protects us from Satan and it is a it is an avenue it is a road that allows us to grow closer to God. It is, it's just basic relationship understandings that the closer we are in God's word, the more we apply God's word, even those little pieces of the law that we don't like, it grows, it, it pulls us closer to our father in heaven and opens up opportunities for him to bless us beyond salvation. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about relationship beyond salvation it allows him to bless us not only in this world but allows us to lay up treasures in heaven you know the bible jesus spoke of laying up treasures many many times but did you ever sit down and think how do i lay those treasures up do i do it my way or do we really want to take the chance that i'm putting an account i'm filling an account in heaven based on my understanding of what right and wrong is or do I want to begin to make deposits for eternity based on what God says I should do? And that is the, the beauty and the blessing of God's law. So here today, we're going to continue our look. Hope, you know, this is the last lesson in this series, Questions and Answers in Genesis unless I start another series later on down the road. But for this particular uh, moment in time, this is the last lesson. And we're going to be looking at the consequences of Adam and Eve. The consequences of Eve is actually what motivated me to start this whole series. That's where it all started. I said to myself, you know, the, the consequences there of Eve are they're a little confusing. And I want to kind of go over that with some people. And as I began to look at that, I began, well, you know, they probably need to know a little bit about what Genesis says here, too. And then, you know, they probably need to know a little bit about what Genesis says here as well. And then I realized, you know, the first few chapters in Genesis are so important, so fundamentally foundational building chapters that I decided we needed to look at as many areas as we could in the short period of time that we have. And so to finish this all up, we're going to end with what was the beginning. We're going to look at the consequences of Adam and Eve, and we will begin with Eve. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter three, last week we looked at the consequences of Satan. And now right after that, in verse number 16, we begin to apply what the consequences of Eve. Now reading, unto the woman, this being Eve, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and 
Thy desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Eve got quite a few things in there that's going to be part of her life and part of the lives of women from that day forward. And that's why it's important for us to look at this, is oftentimes we want to fight against, we'll say, the, the, the way things are now. This is the way things are for ladies. And we see in the world today, we see these ladies struggling and fighting against this, thinking that somehow, and this, see, this is natural. It is natural for us to fight against consequences. We don't like consequences. We don't like the, sometimes the, the position that God places us in. So we fight against it. But what we'll find is, if we're truly honest with ourselves, that our fight against God will never prevail. It only makes things worse. It only makes us unhappy. The best thing that you can do, if, if you were a, a young child and you got in trouble for something and your parent places a consequence on you, that's not the end of the world. And praise God, that's not the end of the world for us either. God brought us a savior who's going to give us an eternal future. So God's like, it's just like a, a, a parent. He's looking down and his love hasn't changed. But he recognizes that he can't just be a liar. He can't say, don't do that or else, and then we do it and not give the else. So God, God's got to follow through with what he said he was going to do. And this is, this is the consequence that he's following through with, with ladies, with Eve. When we, when we just accept it and we bring ourselves under that authority of God, there's a blessing in that. It, you are, you'll find that living with the consequences of your actions is far easier to just go with it. And then you can almost find uh, serenity and blessing in that versus resisting it. And we're seeing that resistance today. And that resistance is causing a lot of people to be very unhappy, very confused, and very disappointed with their lives around them. And many of them are actually blaming God. And, and the reason I believe some of them are, are going so far to say, my life, I'm, blame, I'm blaming God for my problem is, is that they recognize that they're beyond, we'll say, the basic consequence. My life is far worse than what you said it was in Genesis. Well, that's because you're resisting. See, we are the, we're, the, we're our biggest enemy, bar none. We are our biggest enemy. God says this is how it's going to be done. We go and do it some way else. And then we're like, oh, I can't believe I'm in this situation. Then God says, because you did it the wrong way, this is what you're going to have to do from here on out. And then we resist that. And we take that, we'll say punishment, and we make it even worse than it needs to be. And then we sit, come back and we blame God. Why is my life so miserable? Because we resist. From the beginning, we resist. God gives us perfection. We resist perfection. We bring upon ourselves imperfection. And God says, with this imperfection, I'm going to give you an avenue that will make it tolerable. We resist the tolerable until we get to a point that we feel like it is intolerable. But it's not God that we have to blame. It is ourselves. And that is the core aspect of this ministry. It's helping to open up the eyes of those who have uh, cause their so have caused their own problem and be able to to take them off of that track because every track we're walking we we choose to walk it and we can choose to walk a track that's going to bring 
unnecessary pain and suffering. Christianity isn't necessarily a walk in the roses all the time. But there are unnecessary aspects to our walk as a Christian. And I want to help you remove the unnecessary so that you can enjoy the blessings that God has for you in this life. Today, tomorrow, until God calls you home. So let's look, let's break these uh, consequences that have been given here to Eve down just a little bit. Under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Sorrow here, we'll say in the English, the most basic understanding of the English word of sorrow, it means emotional pain and suffering. Sorrow does not connect to physical pain as much as it does to emotional pain. Now, it's not completely, we'll say, removed from physical pain. But when you're sorrowing about something, it's, it's something that you, it's, it's, a, it's an emotion and an intellectual aspect of your grief. So it says that conception will be increased. That means because now we're on a timeline. See, before the fall, although there was time, it was measurable by days. We, already, we discussed that in our very, very first lesson here. That time began in the beginning was the measurement of time. And God used days in the Bible to measure those 24-hour periods. But there was no hurry to bring children into the world because we had forever to do it. Now, there's an end. See, the moment the fall happened there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, we then put an end date. And because there's an end date, now we have to do what was going to take, quite frankly, forever. We're going to have to accomplish the same thing in this end date, which I have no idea what the end date is. But it's obviously much, much, much shorter than eternity. So now we're going to have an increase in conception. Eve and women are going to bring forth children far more than they, time-wise, closer together than they were, we'll say, originally designed to do. With that, we see that sorrow comes with that. I don't think that in this particular phrase that we're looking at, that the sorrow is necessarily talking about the pain and suffering of conception. But I think that it has to do with the sorrow that's going to come now with their children in the fallen state. Children, and this is this is true also of the fathers, but I think that this is, this is a special area for the mothers that fathers can't really understand the, the depth that the mothers carry in this particular area. The relationship that a mother has with a child um, is unique and is special to them. But with that special relationship comes the sorrow. In the world today, we have children that are born diseased. We have children that are born with imperfections that, as much as we want to pretend like we shouldn't judge people, these imperfections do have an impact on the way they're going to live life. Someone who is born into the world with two legs will live a life different than someone who's born into the world without legs. And yet, that happens. That is part of the sorrow that the mother is going to endure, is seeing their most precious children in a way that is less than originally designed, less than perfect. 
And then, of course, death probably tops it off. Even a miscarriage, a child that they've never held or seen with their own eyes, a woman will feel sorrow for the loss of that child. Yes, the fathers will too, but I think it would be unfair to say that the mother and the father share the same level of sorrow. This mother endures a sorrow even of a child they've never met in a way that we can't truly understand. And then, of course, the children that are born into the world. Every day, young children are dying at birth, shortly after, of diseases, even into their teens, whatever it may be. And in fact, in history, we have a, a much cleaner way of living today than we have in the past. But in the past, you had a, a percentage of the children that you knew were going to survive and a percentage of the children that you knew that weren't. And many of these families had 15, 16, 17, 20 children, and maybe only 10 or 15 would survive. That is sorrow that I believe is being spoken of here for the woman, that she will have more children, but in those children will actually be the source of her pain and suffering for their losses and for their misfortunes. Then we read on and it says, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So there's sorrow again. Again, the English understanding of sorrow is more connected to the emotional. But the word, the Hebrew word here for sorrow earlier and the Hebrew word sorrow that we're reading right now are actually two different Hebrew words. The first Hebrew word that we see where it says, I'll multiply thy sorrow in thy conception in the Hebrew, at least the modern interpretation of it, indicates it's an emotional suffering. But the second one, it eases up a little bit on the emotional suffering and it, it, it opens up the door that this is both emotional and physical suffering. So I think that it would be appropriate to add in here that the sorrow that we're talking about here, at least in part, is the pain and suffering that comes with childbearing. That a woman will now, the, the original design, God's original design, was that children can be brought into this world without pain. Now that might be something we can't understand. There might be a, a big intelligent scientist out there that says, well, that's impossible. Well, we don't know what original design looked like. We've been so far removed from it. But based on what I'm reading here, and based on my understanding of what God calls perfect from the beginning, which we do not live in at all today, that pain and suffering, the, the, the um, physical anguish that comes with childbearing, is part of the fall, not part of God's original design. And so we know today that ladies do, in fact, suffer that, that time in history, several hours to even longer, that period which they are bringing a child into the world is a very emotional and physical trauma point in their lives. One which is all worth it in the end once a child is brought into the world. But during that time, they probably even fear. They have this, we'll say this dialectical where they're they're ready for the child to come into the world. They're tired of carrying it. But at the same time, they're not looking forward to the pain that's going to come with it. And there we have that mixture of both the physical and the emotional sorrow that they might feel. Now, I think that's pretty straightforward. I think most people 
understand that. So I don't think I've really added anything to today in that so far. But this next little area of consequence, I think can be confusing for some. And that's, this is actually what inspired me to start this whole um, series in the first place. So let's look at that. Let's take a minute to look at that. Now we have, and thy desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, the first place we have to understand is this is a consequence. This is a, a form of punishment. Oh, we hate to use those words today. I know, I know. But that's exactly what it is. It is a form of punishment. You know what? I'm going to remove that word form. It's punishment. This is not a blessing. This is something that shouldn't be there. It's something that is new and that it's going to be somewhat difficult to deal with. So what does it mean that her desire will be unto her husband? We get the last part. He shall rule over her. That's chain of command. That's authority. The man is now the head of the house. And the lady, and we go to Ephesians, we can see that whole line out. We're not going to do that today. But we have, we have Christ. We have man under Christ. We have the lady under the man. And then we have the children under the ladies. That is the chain of command that God intends for us to operate in our families today. If you're operating in any other way, you're resisting God's word. You're resisting God's way. And that might, in fact, be some of the uh, difficulties in your life. I'm, when I'm, I uh, see all the time uh, ladies and men alike complaining about their relationship situation on the Internet. Oh, I, don't, I can't find this right guy or nobody does this or here's, you know, and I have my own set of relationship rules and I can't really seem to find anyone that's going to fit into my relationship rules. And all of them are living completely outside of God's intended design. And many, if not most, are living outside of God's intended design for marriage. They're just living their life however they want to. And then they're like, why doesn't God bless this relationship? Well, maybe God has blessed the relationships in general. And we have to just place ourselves underneath that, we'll say, chain of command, that way of doing it. And then the blessings will come forth. But... And some of that, it is punishment. So the lady is called to be under the man's rule. Uh, my personal interpretation, some might resist it, but I think that this is not God's original design. I don't know. I'm, I, I think chain of command has always existed, which is why Satan went to Eve. But I don't think that the level that we see today of a lady placing herself under her husband was the original intent. I think this is the product of the fall. So for you ladies that don't like the idea that, oh, he's my boss. God says I have to place myself under the man. That could very well be that this is not God's original design. But let's go to the phrase and look at what does it mean that I shall, thy desire, this is the lady, thy desire shall be unto thy husband. We got a couple of options here that we can weigh out to make this work. We have to work around the word desire. That's really the, the tricky word that we have here. So one of them could be is that this is saying that from this day forward, a lady's emotional connection will only be to her husband. She will love and have affection for no one else. Does that seem to fit what we see in the world today? No. Uh, we, <laughs> we see women that have desire for many men. And many of them, uh, uh, yeah, it's, that would not necessarily fit. 
Because if it did, then it's not, then that, that's not playing out today. Ladies, a good godly woman, perhaps she can place herself in that position to where she only, but does that mean she's never tempted? No, I, I think that ladies are, from time to time are tempted like anyone else and their relationship may not be as perfect as you like. Her husband may have been going through a kind of a difficult situation and she's unhappy at home and she sees something out in the world that she really desires in her heart. She might be at first say, oh, I wish that I had a man like that. Her job as a godly woman is not to give in to that thought. And to resist it and say, no, I'm going to be faithful to my husband. But the very fact that she has that thought outside of the home indicates that it doesn't quite fit here. Because her desire isn't to her husband 100% of the time. And many ladies, like I said earlier, have desires for many men. So that's not going to fit. I don't think that would be a fit. And if it, if it did fit, that's not really a, a consequence. The idea that a lady is now going to love her husband above all other people simply because she's, she's locked into that now, that's not a punishment. So what does it mean? How, do we, how are we going to fit this idea that this is something that she's going to struggle with and make this work? Well, this terminology is used elsewhere in the very next chapter of the Bible. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to jump in at verse number seven. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Cain. Now Cain is complaining. We're going to kind of running this down as we jump into the middle of the story. Cain is complaining because God is receiving the uh, sacrifice of Abel, but is, is not receiving the sacrifice of Cain, and that's upsetting Cain. Cain's like, well, I don't understand why you're accepting Abel, but you're not accepting me. Now, we looked into that a little bit in the first uh, lesson prior to this, why that might actually, there might be some reasons to connect some dots there, that Cain's got kind of a handicap to start with. But here's what God says to Cain about his relationship with sin. Let's see what it says. If thou doest well... Thou shalt, thou shalt not, okay, well, let me start that again. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Okay, this is important. God's saying, if you're a righteous person, won't you be accepted? We're talking about God's acceptance. This is not man's acceptance. We're, God is, is addressing Cain's question about why God is, is rejecting him. And first thing God says is, if you're a righteous person, if you do good things, Cain, will I not accept you? And then he goes on to say, and if thou doest not well, if you don't do good things, if you do evil things, sin lieth at the door. So that first area, what we have is, is God is basically breaking it out for Cain. He says, the reason I'm not accepting your offerings is because and the reason why our, and this is important for us to understand. The reason why our relationship is different than my relationship with Abel is because sin lieth at the door. Sin is part of Cain's life in a very, very intimate way. Now, let's read on. We're getting into that, that area, that phrase is similar to what we read over there with the, with the woman. 
Okay, so sin lieth at the door. Unto thee shall he shall be his desire. So there we go. There's that word desire. But it's not really, doesn't really make a lot of sense yet. Let's look at that again. We, got, we have to understand all the characters that are in this verse. The first character we have in this verse is if thou, in the very beginning we have thou. Thou is Cain. The second character we have that comes into this verse is sin. We see that come in where it says, sin lieth at the door. Now we come into this last phrase, and it says, unto thee, thee we know is Cain, shall be his. Ah, his. Now that, uh, uh, no, that's a character we got to connect to. Who's the other character? Sin. So it's saying here, unto Cain shall be sin's desire. All right. What is sin's desire for Cain? Sin desires to control Cain. Sin desires to overtake and make Cain part of his life. It's all about control here. That's the desire of sin to have control over Cain. And then it says, and thou being Cain shalt rule over him which is sin. So sin has a desire to control Cain and Cain will rule. He will be the ruler of sin. Now, let's take that basic principle and now let's apply it to the ladies. Hear that in the, and we'll go back to verse number 16, chapter three, and it says, thy desire, thy being the lady, the lady's desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. In that statement, if you haven't seen it yet, there is going to be a natural conflict. And here's what the natural conflict is. The desire of the woman means to control the man. You see, if we really understand what desire means, if I desire a candy bar, that means that I wish to have control of that candy bar. It doesn't mean that I wanna place a candy bar up on a shelf. And look at it, it's all pretty. It means that I want to take that candy bar and do with it as I please. I don't want to share the responsibility with the candy bar. I don't want to share it with other people. I want complete and utter control of the candy bar. That is my desire for it. And we can apply that principle to just about any desire. When you want something in your life, you don't want it just to be there and to do its own thing. You want it to be there for you to do with it as you want. That is what's being said here, is that the lady will have this desire, this need to be in control of her husband. But there's going to be a problem. Unlike Satan, where sin is going to be in control of him, he then gets to rule with it. He's ruling over it. Here we have... The desire shall be to thy husband, a desire to um, be in control, but the husband shall rule over her. She wants to be in charge, but he is in charge. That's what it's saying. That is her burden in the fall. Having this inner desire. Now, let's apply this to real world situation. Do we see that today? Ladies that are listening, is that something that is uh, something that you might struggle with? 
as a good godly woman, you recognize you have to put that aside. But there's a natural drive inside of a lady because ladies are, are very valuable and highly intelligent and capable creations of God. That in no way is saying that a lady is, is substandard. So it's easy for them to see, oh, he's not doing that quite right. It's easy to say, oh, well, we need to do that and we need to do this. And I could do, actually do that better. That might not have been the best decision. <laughs> I've weighed it out and I think a different direction would be far better. It's really easy for a lady to do that. And then, which I think a man should listen to the counsel of her wife without question. But in the end, he may choose to go a road. He may make a decision that's different than what you think is the best. And that's going to cause conflict inside of you. You're going to have that initial desire to say, no, stop, listen to me. We have to do it my way or else. And there's the conflict. And there's the relational issues that we might see in marriages today. So probably one of the greatest burdens the lady has to bear is the willingness to place herself under authority. And by doing that, like we spoke earlier, this will bring blessings to her life. Yes, this is a consequence. Yes, this is different than it may have originally designed to be. But by submitting ourselves to God's consequences rather than resist it, I assure you, because this, this is where we'll say the feminist movement grows from. It's a, it's, a, it's a natural resistance of the consequences that I have to place myself in the chain of command. And God's chain of command doesn't really make sense to me and nothing else. I just don't like it. I don't like being under the man. Unfortunately, a lot of men don't like being under Christ. And that's why we have the issues in the world we have today. Because women aren't, aren't alone. Men don't like their position in line oftentimes. And they want to do their own thing. They want to figure it out on their own. They want to use their own understanding, their own intellect. And they want to lead their family. And a lot of men have embraced this idea in their own thinking that perhaps it's perfectly acceptable to let the lady run the house. And then when the house turns itself upside down, children are embracing sin, going out in the world, and there's no structure, no God, no nothing. And he's sitting there going, I don't understand what I did wrong. I gave them everything they wanted. Did you ever think that maybe God not interested in what you think and what you want? But what he wants you to do is just simply do it his way. Don't blame God. Because what you think you did was the high road. If it's not in God's word, it's your road. Not the high road. Your road. That's a conflict that ladies will have. Now, let's move on to the man so we can close out this lesson. Verse 17, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, thou hast eaten of the tree of that which I command thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Now, First, we have to understand, we've gone through three individuals. We're at the third one. We started with Satan, we started with Eve, and now we're at Adam. We know who started this whole process. That was the first one that got the consequences. Satan. He got the ball rolling. I think it's fair to say that the ball would have never gotten started if Satan wasn't on the scene, which is our security in the kingdom to come. 
See, in the kingdom to come, a question that often is posed, well, what's, I mean, God promises this new kingdom, everything's going to be perfect, but what if we fall again? That's a scary thought. We're going to have to start this whole process over again? No. And the reason we won't is because the tempter will be locked up in chains for all eternity. Satan got this started. Without him, this never would have happened because Adam didn't know sin. He didn't know how to commit it. He had to be shown. And Satan showed him through Eve. Then we have Eve. She's the second part of this puzzle. Satan goes directly to her. This is an indicator that there is some sort of chain of command even in the beginning. Maybe not as we know it today. The lot we don't know about the, the unfallen world. But obviously, and the Bible says so, Satan saw Eve as the weaker vessel. He saw that it was an avenue to get in to this process that he wouldn't be able to do directly with Adam. So Eve played a role. But here we're seeing, as we get, begin to dish out Adam's consequence, who carries the greatest response who carries the responsibility for the fall it says adam because he gave in to what she said what she did was irrelevant not for us and we'll say for the fall of the world eve did not bring the fall of the world satan did not bring the fall of the world by one man have we all sinned through adam came the fall and adam alone so he hearkened unto the voice of his wife and did eat of the tree which I commanded thee, commanded you not to eat, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. So we're going to see here that Adam's curse is going to have to do with food, which is a really big portion of our lives. But we're going to see how Food can impact an individual, it's going to impact not just sitting down at the table, but it impacts our whole life. It changes our whole life. It changes what we have time to do, how we spend our time, how we enjoy that time. Everything revolves around this food. And so he says, it says, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. Okay, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow, there we have sorrow again, pain and suffering. Shalt thou eat of it? Eat of what? What is it? It, we connect it back to the ground. There's nothing else. There's no linguistic other way to connect. It has to be ground. You will eat of the ground. The things that grow out of the ground. Okay? So cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it, of the ground, all the days of thy life. And it's still talking about the grounds, and it says, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Like the lady, we're seeing today the same resistance from man. The idea of socialism is 
pure and simple, a resistance to this. God says from this day forward, anything and the most important thing that you have, the most important asset that any man has in this world is food on his plate. It does no good to have a beautiful house, a wonderful car, and a job that obviously doesn't pay anything, if I, or it does, if I cannot access food. It brings sickness and ultimately death, not to mention pain and suffering. Food is the greatest. When you sit down at your meal and give thanks for the food you're about to eat, you are quite literally thanking God for the greatest blessing in this world. Food. And he's saying from this point on, that which you need the most will come with an effort that wasn't originally designed. You will now have to work for it. You'll have to work it won't be as easy as it used to be. You'll have to work through the thorns and the weeds. Every garden you grow, you put the seed in the ground. You're not going to be able to sit back and wait for it to grow. You're going to have to go back and dig the weed out and then go back and dig the weeds out again and go back and dig the weeds out again. You're going to have to fight Mother Nature. The list goes on. It's not going to come easy. And that's where we see socialism. I'm looking for the, I'm looking to get this without having to work for it. I want food on my table, but I don't want to have to fight the thorns. I don't want to have to sweat at the brow. I don't want to have to do any of that. And that's nothing more than man resisting. It is natural to resist the consequences. But will socialism, will any, will any attempt to resist this aspect bring you blessing? Oh, there's several that have done this. Without, we'll say, uh, voting for socialism, but they're in poverty. And then now we see meals sparingly. We want to give in to this and accept it. And what you will find, this is what you will find. Gentlemen, hear me out. A hard working man, a man that has a mindset that says, if I want anything in this world, I have to get it by the spread of, sweat of my brow will be blessed of God, will live a life far easier, far more wealth. I mean, you may not be rich and famous, but if you're willing to work, you will have food on your table, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head, and a reason to thank God every night for that. But any man who thinks and attempts and tries to circumvent this consequence only invites into their lives sin and or poverty. And I believe we want to resist that as Christians as much as possible. I thank you for your time and I pray that God will bless you with these words and have a wonderful afternoon.